<coughs> Let's go back to Ephesians 5, where we left off last time. Uh, I gave some background from Ephesians 4 and from the beginning of Ephesians 5 because there's a great deal here about marriage and some very important statements made <clears throat> toward the end of the, of the book of, or of the chapter, Ephesians 5. But Paul is laying some background for those comments before he makes them about, as Christians, how we are to be clean and pure, and echoing Isaiah 52, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. But Christ is preparing a bride for himself and the type of bride that he desires. <clears throat> so we saw some of that as a background. Now let's go on down to verse 21 and pick the story up there. Uh, verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, that's a general statement written to the entire church. He was writing to the church at Ephesus, but God preserved it for all the churches that would uh, spring forth from there and through the ages until today, <clears throat> that we are all a part of the bride. We are not just individual people. We are individuals, yes, and we do have a certain autonomy before God, and we all have an individual responsibility before God, but we must bear all, always bear in mind that we have a responsibility toward one another. And he addresses that in a general sense here, talking to all of us, speaking to ourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and giving thanks always to God and the Father in the name of our Lord, uh, Emmanuel the Christ. So it's a general admonition to all of us to submit ourselves one to another. And that is something that is very, very difficult for us as human beings, as a congregation, even of the church of God, to submit ourselves one to another. We want to be independent. We want to do our thing and have our own thinking. And yes, we should all individually think. <clears throat> but our thinking should be channeled in certain directions. And we should all be here, submitting ourselves one to another, doing what we can to make each other's lives easier, to inspire, to encourage, to strengthen, even to correct and chasten and chide at times. We're all here for iron to sharpen iron. And sometimes that can create friction. Now, we look upon any friction as being bad. We want total peace, I suppose. But if you've ever sharpened a tool on a grinding wheel, there is a certain amount of friction that is involved for steel to sharpen steel. It needs to be a good and positive Friction, however, not something where it is a grating, hurting, rending, destroying friction. That kind of friction is not good. But the kind of friction that is derived from trying to help, to strengthen, to guide, to lead, to help one another is important. Now, there is a difference between gossip, which is scurrilous and backbiting and 
and tears people down. <clears throat> and the kind of talk that can be designed to help and guide and lead, how, you know, you could be discussing a situation with someone where you may have noticed a difficulty they're having, and you might say something to a brother or a sister about it, not from the standpoint of cutting them down and making them feel bad, but from the standpoint of how can we help that person with this particular trial, test, difficulty, flaw, or whatever it is they have. You know, some of us are so very private that we don't want our name mentioned. And that can be wrong, too. God does say that we should reveal our faults, that's speaking there in terms of healing more, uh, our deficiencies, the things we need prayed about to one another. But just because your name comes up, and there might even be something negative said, does not mean that it's gossip or backbiting. Sometimes it can be fully intended to try to help you with a difficulty. If it is that type of friction, then there's nothing wrong with that. Now, some of us may be far too open about any and everything that might be wrong with us. I, I've known people like that. I don't think of anyone here in particular, but I've known people that will tell you everything that's wrong with them, and it's almost embarrassing at times. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we need to be going around uh, telling our uh, difficulties and I remember one fellow, it just pops into my mind, he's going, boy, I have a real problem with pornography. And uh, he was telling in public, you know, I pray for my problem with masturbation. You know, I hate to even bring that up. I mean, who? In church. But, you know, there's some problems you best just keep yourself and solve. Uh, that's a little too public, I think. Uh, but, I, you know, I don't think of anything here, anyone here, that just popped into my mind from years ago. But someone was that open, and I think that's probably a little too open. Uh, that kind of thing doesn't need to be discussed in public. But then some of us are so very, very private that we don't want anybody to know anything about us. Are you going to maintain that attitude when you're married to Christ? 144,000 of us will marry him. And there should be really no secrets in marriage, should there? Now, when is it we're going to learn to be open? When is it we're going to learn to be like a husband and wife should be? It can become so very private that, that we shut others out of our lives. And that's too private. There's, there's two public, and then there's two private. And it might be that I, I think that probably most people probably tend to be a little too private rather than too public with things. If there's a problem with most people, it's that they keep things too much to themselves, and you don't dare tread there. <clears throat> they want to keep their business, their lives, everything completely hidden. Well, when you're living together in a group like this, that's kind of hard to do anyway, isn't it? Uh, we're here, we can be seen, our comings and our goings and the things we do and the things we say. 
And I think that that's good. Because it helps us to get away from being too private. Where we have to learn to get along with one another, love one another, serve, help, strengthen one another, and yes, even at times, chide each other a little bit when necessary or needful. But if people tend to be too private and too proud, then if you do try that with them, they get all upset. You wound their pride, hurt their feelings, and then they'll go around and tell everybody else about it. And then that becomes negative and becomes dangerous and wrong. But when he says here, submit yourselves one to another in the fear of God, that means that we need to swallow our pride, our ego, our selfishness, and open up and share and submit ourselves one to another. And then he draws it down more specifically. He's headed in this direction through this whole context, but now he draws it down. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the eternal. That is a very difficult thing. Our society has, in a way, liberated women, and it is wrong and was wrong for women to be treated like chattel, as they have been down through the thousands of years since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And at that time, God pronounced them basically to be chattel, and that it would be that way. But in the New Covenant, the New Testament, under a marriage contract, an espousal to Christ, he says it is to be different. Now, wives are to submit just as they would to God, to Christ himself. That's a little hard to take for ladies. And why? Well, why is because you have your own self-centeredness, you have your own pride, and you have your own ego, and your own independence, and America has taught you an imbalance in that, in liberating so far that No longer are women willing to submit. And in many marriages today, they just simply take out the obey. They don't want that. Just remove it. But it is in the Bible, and that's what God wants. So a woman needs to be willing to submit and swallow her own desires, her own wishes sometimes, to subjugate, not to subjugate in terms of slavery necessarily, Although God does use that analogy sometimes between us and Christ. That we are His slaves. We're here to do His bidding. To cooperate with Him, not the other way around. So, wives do have their problem with that. And the other side of the coin is that Christ Himself is perfect. And none of us as human men are. And it's so easy for you wives to see the faults, the weaknesses, the lacks, the wrong attitudes in your husband. And it's very, very difficult sometimes to submit to someone who is so far from perfect. But God has said that you should work toward doing that in every way, difficult as it may be. 
Now, you can't just blame the old man either. Because Christ is perfect. He has never done anything wrong. And look at how much trouble ancient Israel had in submitting to him in that first marriage. She had her own agenda, her own desires, her own way she wanted to go. And as perfect as he was, she simply would not submit. And think of all of us, men, women, and children here. He's still perfect. He hasn't sinned yet. He knows how to be the absolute perfect loving husband. He knows exactly when to encourage, to inspire, to strengthen. He knows exactly when to chasten and to punish and how much. He knows when to send trials, when to lift them. He has an absolute perfect balance and understanding of how to work with each and every one of us. And yet look at us, men and women, and how hard it is to submit to everything he says and to live by every word of God. Because we are yet carnal and we still walk too much by the flesh. So we have trouble submitting to him. We have trouble submitting to each other. And we, as wives, have trouble submitting to our own husbands. Let's go on. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So, he's beginning to say here that there's a typology. That he has placed on this earth a situation that is a type of an analogy to Christ and the church. That is, a husband and a wife in a marriage. So, a wife is to approach her husband the same way that the church should approach Christ. He is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Now, the husband is given an incredible office, responsibility, and job to, put, to be in the position of being the head of his wife and to save her in many ways from the pitfalls of life. And maybe it's hard for wives to picture their own physical husbands who get dirty and stink and have problems in that fashion. But that's the analogy that is there. And we as men have a tremendous responsibility to be the kind of man that makes her job a little easier and not so difficult. But that's what she is instructed to do. Verse 24, Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in pretty much everything, or nearly everything, or in lots of things, or in things she feels like doing. Or, how does that say that? Must be a really bad translation. It says, in everything. Everything. It's a tough deal, girls. 
<laughs> it really is. But then who said it would be easy? It's a good thing we love one another, isn't it? It's a good thing husbands and wives tend to love one another. Because this is difficult to do. But really, it's difficult to be a Christian, isn't it? It's difficult to submit ourselves to Christ Himself. And our nature rears up in so many ways daily in the way we think, act, what we say, what we do, examples, attitudes that are ungodlike, that are unchristian. So He's really not asking you wives to do anything beyond what we're supposed to be doing as Christians anyway. It's just that there's analogy, an analogy and a type here that we need to fulfill, and we're here to be reminded on a day-to-day basis <coughs> of how we should respond to Christ. And it gets very difficult to respond to your physical husband the way you ought to, just as it is to Christ. But it's there as a daily reminder of how your response should be to God in heaven. You can see your husband. You can't see Christ. So you have a physical husband to remind you of Christ and how you ought to be responding to him. This is so important that God made physical marriage and uses it as a type and an example to live by day by day to remind us of God and of the future. So as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. It's a very difficult responsibility on the ladies. And then he says to the husbands, love your wives. Now, husbands tend to have more interests in some respects than women do. A wife is there mostly about the house, if she's doing it correctly, and the children. She's the one that's there to take care of the children to feed and to nurture and to teach them and to guide them and to lead them into God's ways. Proverbs 31 gives her those responsibilities, but then it expands her role somewhat, in, even into buying a field and, and doing an outreach to others, acts of charity and so on. So she's not completely limited, but her life is designed to revolve around husband and children and home. A husband has that responsibility with wife and children and home, but he also has a responsibility of providing a living and various other things that have to do, help govern a community or uh, a political situation, if you will, more than the wife is. He could sit among the elders of the land and so on. <clears throat> so... They have somewhat different responsibility, and it says in another place, not to be bitter against your wives. Sometimes it's easy for a man to get busy with other things and not give his wife the attention she needs and should have. I've been guilty of that at times myself. I get busy with this, this, and that. The first thing you know, my wife's not getting 
the kind of attention I ought to be giving her. Love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. So he brings the same analogy. Well, how did Christ love the church? What was he willing to do for the church? Love your wives the same way he, as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, he gave himself in at least two ways. He came here and lived an absolutely perfect life, never sinned, never did anything wrong, as an example to what would become the church. He put himself through all kinds of privation and pain and temptation and difficulty, and never gave in to any of those whims or desires of human nature and carnality and sinned. He never, ever sinned in any form or fashion. So he gave himself as a living sacrifice day by day as an example to he whom he would betroth to be his wife later on. He wasn't betrothed while he was here, was he? He was a single man. And he led that single life in a proper, godly fashion. He wasn't out drugging and boozing and chasing girls. He was devoting himself to his Father in heaven and keeping himself clean and pure for his future wife giving himself, sacrificing those desires of a young man, whatever they might have been. And he was tempted in all points, like as we are. There's none of you guys that have ever grown up, none of us, who have ever been tempted in any way, form or fashion, any more than he was. And in fact, he probably had greater, stronger pulls and desires than we do. Otherwise, how could he be an example for us? If you have stronger urges towards sin than he did, then how does his sacrifice count? See what I mean? If you can say, yeah, but I was tempted more than he was. No. I suspect that he was a very virile, red-blooded young man who had any and every desire any young man has ever had on the face of this earth and probably a stronger one. So that he overcame more than any of us ever have. And he was doing it, why? For the sake of his bride-to-be. He would begin the church soon after his death. <clears throat> and then, not only did he present himself as a living sacrifice... He was living, live, willing to literally be tortured, punished, martyred, and die for his bride-to-be. He gave all for her. Now, that's the kind of love that we men should have for our wives. The way that we conduct ourselves as we grow up before we're married, and then how we conduct ourselves after we're married. Now, there's a tall order for you. To be just like Christ 
to our wives. That doesn't leave room, does it, for putting her down in a wrong way? It doesn't leave room for being a an overlord over her, but to be gentle, to be loving, to be kind, to be strong, to be a, a good example for her so that she might have an easier job of submitting herself in everything. <clears throat> so he gave himself for it, verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. It is part of our responsibility to make sure that our wife is inspired, led, helped, strengthened, encouraged to be what she should be. I think we often fall short of that. It says sanctify her. That is to set her aside for special use. She is supposed to be very, very special to her husband. And he has a responsibility to maintain that attitude toward her. A lot of marriages in this world don't live up to that, from the woman's side or the man's side. And they wind up in serious problems and divorce or murder <laughs> or whatever <clears throat> because people are, do not understand and don't live up to these principles that Paul is laying out here. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might have presented to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Now, this is speaking spiritually, of course. Men and women physically do get older, and they do begin to have spots and wrinkles physically. Because as we age, those things come. So he obviously, I mean, you can't present, let's say you're married to this woman for 40, 50, 60 years, and you're to present her to yourself without spot or wrinkle? I don't think so. Because she's eventually going to wrinkle. You are too. But she should be beautiful and without spiritual spot or wrinkle. Because of your leadership, by the time she reaches full maturity as a woman and toward the end of her life, because of the example that we men are supposed to set and how we treat her, her character, her attitude should be beautiful and godly. Spiritually mature, without faults, without weaknesses, without spots or wrinkles. I'm not talking about her physical body. You know, we put in this society an awful lot of emphasis on physical beauty in women. And if they're not physically beautiful to start with, we have words for that. Dogs or cows or skanky or, you know, whatever in our society. All kinds of terms for a woman that's not as beautiful as we think she ought to be. And the girls have an incredible amount of pressure put on them 
to be physically beautiful. Now, that isn't what's the most important thing. Spiritually beautiful, mentally, emotionally beautiful, in control of her mind and her emotions and her feelings and able to live in a godly fashion is what is truly beautiful. And someone who may not be just to the glance of the eye physically beautiful can become very beautiful in character. Men the same way. There are guys that, you know, some of you girls wouldn't give them a second look. But sometimes, if you get to know them, they might have wonderful personalities and character, and, and that makes up for a lot of physical beauty. Someone who can make you smile, can make you laugh. Someone who can pick you up and make you feel better. Who have good attitudes can become physically more attractive than they were at first glance because the character shines through. And it's the beauty of the personality more than the beauty physically that is so very important. But our society has it all upside down, backwards. Keep your finger here for a moment and go to 1 Peter 3. This isn't just me talking. God inspired Peter. He says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. 1 Peter 3, one. That if any obey not the word, they don't understand God's way, that they also may be one, or without the word, without the preaching, be won by the conduct of the wives. That they are so beautiful spiritually that you don't have to preach the Bible to them or preach God to them, but because of your conduct, and conversation is a really, totally lousy translation there. Because some women think they can do it with their conversation, their words, with their talk. That's not what the King, not what the Bible said at all. That's an old King James word. It means conduct, or comportment, the way you act. So it isn't the word that might win them over, it's how you act. While they behold your good conduct coupled with fear, your godly conduct coupled with fear, fear of God. Putting God first in your life. If they're not called, they're not in the church, it might be that the opportunity for them to learn and to be impressed would come by the way you live and act. That's the only possible way you might influence them. Women have tried the other way. They've tried preaching. They've tried hammering them over the head with the Bible. It doesn't work. It just drives them away. But if you can quietly obey God and serve God and become a better woman, a better example service and love and giving and sharing and helping and attending to your own husband, especially. And he might begin to say, man, what happened to this woman? She used to be selfish. She used to want to be served. She used to want to have her way. She used to want to do all these things. And now she's willing and serving and giving and helpful. 
What happened? She's been transformed. Isn't that what Romans 12 says we're to be? Transformed. Becomes so different that that is what impresses him. Not preaching the Bible to him. But getting back to where I was in Ephesians 5, whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning of fixing the hair and of wearing of gold or putting on of apparel, the way we dress, the way we fix our hair. Now, it's not wrong to fix your hair, and it's not wrong to wear clothes. Even nice-looking ones are okay. But that should not be the main emphasis, is what he's saying. Now, Christ adorned his bride, didn't he, in Ezekiel 16 and various other places, Revelation 2 and 3, talk about giving her a crown and various things. <clears throat> so it's not wrong for us to look nice, but it's become an obsession in the world, and especially in America today, that you have to always look good. Physical looks have become the important thing. Now, yes, it's good to look good, as look good as we can, but, man, we spend billions every year on fixing hair and makeup and fancy clothes and just the right things so that we can always look good, physically. Way out of proportion. How much time do our young girls and ladies in this society spend studying the kind of personality they should have, the kind of character they should have, the kind of conduct, morally, emotionally, at work, and at play, the kind of person they ought to be. I dare say, 99 point whatever percent it is, spend more time concerned about their physical looks than their spiritual, mental, and character issues. It's out of balance, in other words. <clears throat> so, the adorning, the major adorning, should not be these outward things. But it, let it be the hidden man of the heart, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. <clears throat> How many women in this nation focus on, concentrate on, and try to develop a meek and quiet spirit? I wonder. What percentage would you say actually focus on and say, I want to be of a godly, a meek, and a quiet spirit among women? Could I get a percentage of, what, what percentage do you think of women in this nation consciously work on that? Anybody have a clue? I'll sure bet it's less than 10%. Probably a lot less than 10%. Now, what percentage would you say spend a lot of time looking in the mirror and trying to look just right? I'll bet that's a whole lot more than 90%. But you see, it's a balanced thing here. It's an understanding thing. It's what's important. <clears throat> Even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price, a meek and quiet spirit, humble, serving, giving, loving, submissive, cooperative 
spirit and attitude is what God is after. And to Him, that's worth billions. Great price. We spend billions on looking good physically, and God values commensurately at billions, if you will, how much we honor these works. For after this manner, in the old time, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands. If you worked on your attitude toward your husband, the same amount of time or more, should be more really, than you spend trying to look physically good, what a transformation that could create in our women and girls who are preparing for marriage. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, now doesn't he say there in Ephesians 5 that you should respect your husband and treat him the same way you would Christ? Yes, he does. So she called him Lord. <clears throat> I don't know that we need to go around saying yes, Lord, all the time to our husband. Uh, but that deep respect should be there so that we think of him in those terms as a type of Christ. In your life, your husband is a type of Christ. Now, how good a type is subject to some inspection. But that's what God placed him as. Some days may be better than others. But you should still have a reverent, well, maybe reverent is the word, but a very respectful attitude toward him as you would to Christ. Whose daughters you are as long as you do well and can understand and follow this. Then he says, likewise, you husbands, you have your side of this as well, dwell with them according to knowledge, to understanding. It's said in our society, well, you just can't understand women. You'd better, we had better learn to understand women. We better learn to know women. How can you lead someone if you don't understand her? We can't just throw up our hands and say, you'll never understand women. And women have adopted the same thing. Men just can't understand us. What's, what's the mystery? What's the mystery? Men react differently emotionally and so on than women do. But that doesn't mean you can't understand how a woman is. And it doesn't mean a woman can't understand how a man is. Of course, they figure they got us all figured out anyway. They understand us, but we don't understand them. They have a different emotional makeup than men. And sometimes we have difficulty being sensitive and understanding enough to recognize what their need is. But we need to work on that one. But I understand women, they're just like men. They're vain, they're selfish, they're egocentric. They're carnal. They're self-serving by nature, just like men are. Now, God did place within a woman a natural desire to take care of family and nurture and so on that he didn't put in a man. That's a different matter. But 
as human beings, we all have pretty much the same faults and flaws and difficulties in a general sense. Dwell with them according to knowledge. Know about them. Understand them. Understand what they're about and what their job is and how to react to them. Giving honor to the, the wife. Not dishonoring her because she's not like you, but giving honor to her in the role that God made her. As to the weaker vessel, yeah, you may be physically more powerful and in some ways emotionally stronger than a woman, but then on the other hand, a woman has a different type of strength. And she can be emotionally very, very strong, and sometimes stronger than a man. Often can take more than a man. Living with a man, she has to be able to take more than a man. <laughs> but we need to understand a lot. And not just gloss over it, or blow her away. But understand that she has a very difficult job in what God has given her to do, to be a help fit for her husband, to help him, to strengthen him, to encourage, to chide, to help him do the job he's been given to do. That's her job and purpose in life. So instead of just focusing on the the figure in the face and the dress. The girls, as they grow up, should learn the skills that are necessary to help a man be everything he can be in society. To help prepare herself to be able to help him be the right kind of employee or employer, to be the right kind of example, to free him from some of the things that may be inane things to him, that you do so that it frees him to do important things in life. You're there to help him. Giving honor as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Neither man nor woman is more important in the scheme of things than the other. Heirs together, co-heirs, to be the bride of Christ. So you're not to treat her as being lesser than you are. She's not. She's just as important in God's eyes as you are. But it's easy for a man to look down on a woman. And you see a lot of that. And it's been that way for about 6,000 years. Now, we've tried to change it in this society, but it's gone so far the other direction that now the women are taking charge and ruling over us and our children doing the same. So we went from one ditch to the other, and somewhere in there is the godly balance of the way he wants things to be. All right, back to Ephesians 5. <coughs> Stop and get a taste of water there. I strained my throat. Verse 27 of Ephesians 5, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that it should be holy and without blemish. It's our job, men, to help our woman, our wife, become holy and without spiritual blemish. (coughs) To lead her, to guide her in the ways that she should go and think. To lead her in Bible study, to lead her in prayer, to lead her in example, in the right way. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. Now, we're very solicitous of our body's comfort, aren't we? We want to be not too cold, not too hot, not too wet, not too empty, not too full. We want our bodies to be at peace and at rest and happy bodies. When we shave, we tend to shave fairly carefully because we don't want to cut our delicate little pretty face. It may not be delicate and pretty, but it can cut and it bleeds. So we're fairly careful in how we say shave. And we need to treat our wives the way we treat our own bodies. You know, we want our wives to make food for us. We want her to have enough covers on the bed. We want her to uh, get out of our easy chair, you know, whatever. We want them to make us comfortable. We want them to provide not only food for us, but just what we want. And sometimes they know better. Sometimes what I want and what my wife fixes for me are two different things. And sometimes she tells me to get out of that and get this. She's trying to help me. Doesn't feel like help at the moment because that's what I want. But she's a help fit for me sometimes when I'm not doing things that will make me fit myself. But we're supposed to treat her the way we would our own body. As comfortable as we want it, then we should try to make her. So that her life is easier and more productive and happier. It should be a goal and a purpose. He that loves his wife loves himself. It shows that he has the right kind of love, not just selfishness and wanting what he wants. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh. You know, maybe somebody's demon-possessed or something, they throw themselves into a fire or punish themselves or beat their head against a wall. But most of us don't just go stick our hand in the blender, do we? You know, if you're working on a hot engine, you don't just say, well, I think I'll rest my hand on the valve cover for a while. We go out of the way to try not to feel pain. So we don't, in that sense, hate our flesh as a normal human being. But he nourishes it and cherishes it. I've noticed when I get in the shower, I don't just, if it happens to be on full cold, I don't just leave it there. If it happens to be on full hot, I don't just stand there and say, well, okay, I guess I can take the heat and go ahead and shower. No, baby, I'll get hold of that thing. I'll fine-tune that thing where it feels just right. 
because I want my flesh to feel good. And what I do with that shower knob is what I ought to be doing with my wife, making sure she feels as good as possible. No, I'm not playing with it, I'm adjusting it. Come on. It's okay to play with her too. It's all right. God made that. For no man yet ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. He is very, very concerned about the church. Now, if we're in God's church, Christ is so concerned for us, and maybe for all the humans on earth, for that matter, that he counts the very hairs on their head. And not even a sparrow falls to the ground that he doesn't know about. Oh, this creation down here, he is very attuned to. And as humans, he pays far more attention to us than he does the sparrows, as he says in that passage. If he can count the hair on your head and does, then that shows to me a pretty important and finite interest in us. That's the way he treats the church. Now, to us sometimes, it might seem like he's far away and he's not taking care of us, and why do we have problems? Well, we're in training to be the bride of Christ. And when you're in training, you're not there yet. And training is not easy. Have, Have we ever tried to go into physical training for sports? You want to be good at football or basketball or baseball or something, track, whatever it might be, and you spend many, many hours pushing your body to the point of pain to be able to be competitive and hopefully to be dominating over your opponents, whoever they might be. Physical training is very rigorous, very hard. It's something we don't like to do. They say, feel the pain. That's how hard we're supposed to work at it if we're to be a dominant athlete. Or even competitive. And here we're in spiritual training. And the lessons are not easy. And they come with difficulty. Nothing would be easy about this. Training to be a bride, preparing yourself, is not easy. Not really easy preparing to be a physical bride, is it? <clears throat> you have to learn to cook, to clean, to sew. Some of those things don't always come easy, among other things. They take a lot of time and energy and interest. And mothers should be training their daughters to do all those things, and at the same time, to have a meek and quiet and uh, willing Serving, giving, attitude. Those things are not easy to come by. Because as young human beings, we tend to be self-serving and selfish and want what we want and lazy. And we don't have a bigger picture of what we should be someday. We just have a picture of how we want to feel and what we want to do right now. And it's not easy for parents to train young girls to have all the skills they ought to have as wives. It's painful 
in many cases. And it's especially painful in our American society today where both boys and girls are taught that they deserve to play all the time and they don't deserve to work. And a lot of us fall on our faces by not teaching our children to be productive and to be workers, to serve and to give and to work hard. We listen to all manner of griping and complaining just over washing the dishes. And that might be all they do. Now, we are out here to learn something different. We're here to learn, with each man his own vine and fig tree, to have gardens, to have animals, to take care of those animals, to learn the right kind of family life, and to learn all the skills that go along with that. We're here to divorce ourselves from the ways of this world as adults and with our children. We're here to teach them to be productive. And you know, you almost have to withdraw the things of the world from them in order to even work on those attitudes because what they see on television and in video games and that kind of thing perverts their approach to life and leisure and play to the point they don't want to work and learn to be productive and giving and to be a part of a family effort. <clears throat> they want food. They want clothes. They want toys. They want entertainment. And they don't want to be productive part or a productive part of a family situation. And the world pulls them that way. And the more access they have to the things of this world, the more difficulty you're going to have with them. Now, we as parents must accept the responsibility for rearing children to be godly. They're not just there because they happen to come along and you're going to be with them for 18 years and then dump them out somewhere. They're not there to be your toys. They're the children of God, created in the image of God. And a husband and a wife come together in a physical way to produce children, to have those children become godly and to represent God in their lives and to grow up to become godly. And sometimes we miss that picture. And we do not accept the responsibility of a husband representing Christ and a mother representing the bride of Christ and our children representing the children of God. We get very lax and slack in those things. And it's just not worth it to us to take the time and the energy 
that is necessary to train those children to be godlike instead of carnal, selfish, human beings just like the world around them. It's easier to do it yourself than it is to teach a child to do it. It's faster, it's quicker, and there's a whole lot less hassle just to do it yourself rather than do what is necessary to lead, guide, instruct, and help the child to do it. Or to do it with them and have them help you do it. So they learn not just by being told, go do that, and they don't know how. But so many fathers will do that. Rather than having their sons work with them and learn something by example, my dad did sometimes, and sometimes he just told me, go do such and such. I didn't know how to do that. I guess I was supposed to figure it out, but he was doing something more important, and then, you know, I did know how to get the grass burrs out of the grass. Now, that's something he'd send me to do by myself, and I despise that so badly. But I was held accountable, and I had to spend hours out there digging the burrs out of the grass. I didn't like it one bit. But I guess I needed it. It might have worked better if he'd have been out there helping me do it, but those were times when he was having to work 16, 18 hours a day just to feed us. So it wasn't entirely his fault that he wasn't out there doing that with me. He could have probably shown me how to do it faster and better and get it done instead of out there with a lousy attitude just picking at it. Well, I don't want to turn this into a a sermon necessarily on child-rearing, but think about it, parents. Are you letting your children just grow up? Or are you teaching them to be the right kind of human beings in attitude and giving them the skills they need? There is absolutely no excuse for a girl to grow up and not knowing how to cook, how to sew, how to truly clean a house properly. There's no excuse for that among us. But it happens because parents don't accept their responsibility and it's easier to just do it yourself than to have the kids do it. Boy or girl. We do have a responsibility before God. So a man nourishes and cherishes his wife, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Everything that he went through as a human being, we're part of. We're supposed to experience the temptations, the frustrations, the trials, the difficulties that he experienced. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother. Now he's going back and quoting Genesis here and shall be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Now, God said that of Adam and Eve in the beginning, and they failed in it miserably, and mankind has been failing in it ever since. But now we are living under a new covenant, a new opportunity, a different set of rules, and God expects us 
to be joined together and become one flesh. Not only physically in a physical marriage relationship, but to become mentally and emotionally together and joined together. And it's not easy. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Now, I could have gone through and not mentioned that part of it until this point, just speaking physically of us as humans, husbands and wives physically. But you all knew this was here. And I've been using the analogy even going through the physical part about Christ and the church. But Paul draws it down, and that's the reason that he's going through this, is to show that physical marriage is a type of Christ and the church. It's not just a physical union. It is that until death. But it pictures far more than that. We are to be, as we go through life, day by day, as living examples of how it will be between Christ and His bride. He married once, and he was perfect, and she was far from it. And now he has established a new covenant. He came and lived and died as an example. So that we should walk in his footsteps to do as he did. Set a perfect example for 33 and a half years and died right at the prime of physical life. Right at the prime of it. Even physically with athletes. They have strength, the power, the speed, the skill in their 20s and up to 30 But they often don't have the discipline and the knowledge and the understanding of the game, whatever it might be, until they get in their 30s. And they reach their absolute peak at about age 32, 33, of mastery of the various aspects of the game, but also they're still at top physical productivity and ability. So, they can do better at age 33 than a younger person can at age 23, who hasn't learned to use all the strengths and power and coordination of his body yet in that particular sport, whatever it might be. But from about 33, average on, from about 33, they begin to lose it a little. 34, 35, 36... By then, most of them are washed up. It's a very rare athlete that can provide, that can still perform at a high level at 38, 39, or 40. Very rare. There are a few. <clears throat> but even they are not as good as they might have been at 34. So the very peak is at about 33. Even in today's athletes. So Christ died at a time when he was at his physical peak. I think that's important to understand. 
And if, if you were going to pick an age that you would want to be forever, I think about 33 would be about it. You haven't physically begun to decline much. And yet you're hopefully old enough to have learned a few things by 33. So you can still perform. But from about then, we all begin to slowly lose it. You know, you kind of you kind of crest the hill at 33, 34, and then by 40, uh, Katie bar the door. It's all downhill. We don't even like to admit it, do we? But it happens to all of us. I'm hoping Christ returns before I go the full route. You know, I'm already feeling aches and pains and difficulties that I didn't feel five years ago, ten years ago at all. And I'm young compared to some of you, but I can see where I'm headed, and it ain't very pretty. <laughs> In fact, it gets uglier by the minute, it seems. But God made us physical, didn't He? And we're made to deteriorate. We're made to understand that this human life is only so long, and it's only so good, and then it's going to get worse, and then we're going to die. And He did that so that we might learn that there's something better that we can look forward to. And you know, we don't tend to think spiritually too much when we're 15 or 20 or 30, because we're still busy and think we can change the world and everything's going to go right for us and we won't make the same mistakes our parents did or our grandparents made or those people down the street are making. Because we're going to be better than anybody else. But there's a certain point in our lives where we suddenly begin to realize, wait a minute, I've lived 40, 50, 60 years and the world hasn't been changed one whit by me. And now I'm getting to the point I can hardly get out of bed and go do anything, and I don't think I'm really going to change the world. And then we look back and say, well, I guess I did make some of the same mistakes that others have made that I didn't think I would ever do. But we did. This human life is for a time. It is a type. It is a symbol of something forever. Something that will be beautiful and be right forever. And he says that marriage and family are here to picture Christ in the church. So how we conduct our marriages and our children and child rearing are to be a type of the way Christ and his bride will rule the world in the millennium. That is going to be a time of great peace, a great time of productivity, a time when there will not be wars and fighting, a time when everything will be good on earth. And our families should reflect that. It's difficult to achieve, isn't it? Hard to do, because we are yet carnal, and we are not yet humble and meek. Now, all that's coming on this earth in the next months and few years, is primarily designed for one purpose. That is to take vain, 
egocentric, self-centered, proud human beings and transform them into meek, submissive, humble servants. It is going to require billions of people to shrivel up and die from malnutrition and lack of food and literally starve to death. It is going to cause people to have to be cut in pieces with swords and shrapnel from bombs and bullets. It is going to come about as a result of horrible diseases that are going to ravage people's bodies and debilitate them to the point of terrible suffering and misery and death. Christ will not rule a world that is selfish, egocentric, and proud. He hates those things. And yet we are full of that. <clears throat> and so often, our pride and vanity and ego, when we come into the church, takes on yet another aspect, which is very hard for us, individually and personally, to see in ourselves, but that is self righteousness or self-pride in our spiritual condition. And that is one of the main things that characterizes the end-time church. What God blows it apart for is our spiritual pride. I am rich and increased in goods and need nothing. So not only is he having to destroy society and the population of the earth to get rid of their carnal, physical, human pride, but he's also destroying the church in order to get rid of our spiritual pride and ego and vanity, our self-righteousness, so that it becomes his righteousness, not ours. It's an insidious disease that is destroying the church of God. Why will you die, O Israel? We're here. We have the understanding that we're to be the bride of Christ and we're to react to Him in the same way that He's speaking here in this chapter. That we're to make a marriage the way it ought to be. That reflects the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, happiness, strength, godliness. That's what we're here to become. It's a great mystery. But we're here as the bride of Christ to learn to be the right kind of woman to Him. Able to be corrected, guided, led, strengthened, inspired. Basil Wolverton did a whole series of articles way back in the 50s. Some of you might remember seeing them in The Plain Truth or The Good News, I guess it was, really but these different types of people. And you've even used them in the uh, Ambassador Club and Spokesman's Club manuals uh, of these pictures of this guy that said, inspire me. It was about the inspirations, the speech you're designed to inspire, but the attitudes you had to face. Some people don't want to be inspired. And he had martyred Myrtle. 
Always had to feel sorry for herself. Oh, this man that you gave me. Oh, and she would submit. But then she would go around talking about how bad and how evil her husband was. What were some of the other characters? He had a whole uh, a raft of them. Uh, but we have to be responsive. We have to be willing to be taught and to learn. And you know, it's just as difficult, maybe more so in some respects, for you to sit as you are today here in this room and have somebody get after you and chide you and correct you, maybe inspire you if possible. Uh, sometimes it's very, very difficult to take and it hits us in the stomach and sometimes it just, it just our carnality just is there. Don't talk about that anymore. Go talk about something else. I don't want to hear that anymore. Because we still do have pride and vanity and ego. And it's just as hard sometimes for you husbands to listen to your wives, or you wives to listen to your husbands. Maybe it's even worse with preachers. I don't know. But if our attitude's right, we really shouldn't have that problem. If our attitude is right, if somebody is opening the Bible and discussing the Scriptures and reading the Scriptures to us, that should be a great source of strengthening, of learning, of inspiration. In other words, our attitude should be willingness to be taught and to learn. It should not be an independent, and I have my own ideas. Because how could Christ establish a world-ruling empire that is full of peace and happiness if He has people all over the world that are saying, No. I don't like that. It just can't be. And this world is about to go through the most horrible, horrible time that human beings have ever suffered since the foundation of the earth. For primarily one express purpose, to bring humility and meekness Willingness to listen and to be taught. That is probably the hardest thing for human beings to accept. We do not like to be told we're wrong. We do not like to be criticized. We have our pride. And we are not humble. Therefore, we are not teachable. A proud, egocentric mind is not teachable. Same with our children. We have to remove privileges. We have to spank behinds. We have to do things to get them in a humble attitude where they will listen to what we have to say. But an undisciplined, unlistening mind cannot be taught. In this world, presently, cannot be taught. In fact, God is going to send 
a ministry at the end to tell the world all these words that are in this book. And they will not be taught, they will not listen, and therefore they're going to have to be destroyed. When they come up in a resurrection, having been destroyed horribly, they're going to have a different attitude. That's what it's all about. In marriage, it's all about attitude. In the church, it's all about attitude. And this world is permeated by the nobody's going to tell me what to do attitude. And if we still have that, then that indicates that we're still carnal and fleshly, and our reactions are not godly, and that we're still full of pride and ego and vanity. That's what it indicates. So, we're here to reflect Christ and the church. This is bedrock. Milk and meat combined. This is the one huge concept that we need to get. And I think God set it up on purpose this way, to have a ministry, to have those who would be asked to tell us, to teach us, to correct us, to guide us, to lead us. And he didn't send angels to do it. He sent carnal, human, fleshly men who have faults and problems of their own. And it makes it very difficult for us. But that's part of what is necessary in order for us to learn the lessons and to get rid of our pride and our ego and our vanity. It's not easy. It's not easy sometimes for a wife to listen to the instruction of her husband and to submit to him. It's hard. And it's hard for our mother, the church, and us as children to hear, to heed, and to change. We're going to do it our way. And, well, he's just wrong about that whatever it is that we don't go along with. Well, what if you had a whole world out there that told Christ when he came back, and you as the bride, the mother, well, you just don't know about that. That's not the way I am. You don't understand me. Let's do it this way. Now, he's going to send people to say, this is the way, walk in it, or else. <clears throat> he's going to rule with a rod of iron what it says. And if you're not humble and meek, a rod of iron can be very nasty. If you're humble and meek, the rod doesn't get used on you. But if our children are self-centered and lazy and don't want to do what we want them to do, then they need the rod of iron. And God says you don't really love them unless you use it. He says you actually hate your children. Now, you may feel an emotion of desire for them and liking them and loving them, but for their purpose in life, for their future, he says you might as well just be hating them because you're not teaching them the discipline and the self-rule that they need. 
And so they'll grow up to be undisciplined and not able to rule themselves and to control themselves, and they'll make all kinds of mistakes. So what you were doing by showing you thought love is going to turn into a horror story for them when they don't learn self-control. You have to provide it for them. If their attitude's wrong, you have to change it, not tolerate it. Now, the whole world has a wrong attitude. And Christ is no longer going to tolerate it. He's going to change it. Or we will all die. He is that serious. And He does love every child on this earth enough to punish us to the point of death and resurrection so that we might learn to live in love and peace and control ourselves and not have a vain, carnal, me-first spirit and attitude. It's a great mystery. But what we're going through in our marriages and our child-rearing is supposed to be a reflection of what Christ is doing with the church and consequently with his children, the world, and our children, the world. So he takes pretty stiff measures, doesn't he? We need to take pretty stiff measures with ourselves <clears throat> and rule ourselves and our children the way Christ does the church. So let's understand that marriage and family <coughs> is the most important thing there is because it's a symbol of all the spiritual things that exist in God's universe. <coughs> and that's a good thought to keep in mind then to end this today. <coughs>